Welcome to the JIMD podcast, to my knowledge the only podcast dedicated to the fascinating world of inherited metabolic disease. I'm James Nurse, a paediatrician, social media editor and the podcast Perpetually Confused host. In fortnightly episodes I speak with authors about journal research and help you to catch up on journal articles you may have missed. In the last two years we've published hours of content, so if IMD is your thing be sure to check it out, but not before listening to this latest episode on ALG8 CDG. Now, we keep coming back to congenital disorders of glycosylation on the podcast, and with over 170 distinct metabolic disorders under this umbrella, it's no surprise. In today's episode, I'm joined by two of the authors of the recent paper, ALG8 CDG, Molecular and Phenotypic Expansion Suggests Clinical Management Guidelines. And they are Dr. Dania Al-Bakari of the Department of Pediatrics, Tiber University College of Medicine, Medina, Saudi Arabia, and Dr. Andrew Edmondson, who works in pediatrics, genetics, and metabolism at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dania and Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. And Dania, I must say, I think you're our first guest from Saudi Arabia, which is very exciting as it's the fifth biggest market for the podcast. So a big shout out to the local listeners. Um, when I spoke with Yak, Yakin and Hud Freeze about this group of disorders, they suggested that clumping them all together was sort of helpful, but maybe sort of unhelpful. Uh, the disorders themselves are highly heterogeneous and across all of the different subtypes, there is a lot of variability. ALG8 is a type one disorder, but it is itself very rare, just 19 cases before your paper, I believe. Can you look at all type 1 disorders together or perhaps the different ALG, CDG, can they be grouped clinically? How do we make those comparisons or are they all very distinct? Well, CDGs are a heterogeneous group with a lot of variability, even within single genetic causes. However, some symptoms track within larger groupings such as the blood coagulation abnormalities within type 1 CDG. What can be more helpful is to group patients by organ system involvement, which, when involved, can track more closely across type 1 disorder or ALGCDG disorders. This is partially the rationale we choose in proposing our consensus management and monitoring guidelines. We take the non-multisystem organ involvement of any reported ALG8CDG patient and say this complication should be screened for, particularly when there is established medical treatment. Our experience from other CDG types also informs these clinical recommendations. Grouping type 1 disorder or different ALG-CDG can be helpful, taking in account that these disorders are very rare, and we want to be able to provide proactive and comprehensive care to patients who can be very sick. The difficulty with this approach is these disorders can vary significantly among the different subtypes and even among the individual with the same underlying enzyme defect and underlying gene. Also, with more than 170 different types of CDG, some of them can have uncommon presentation broaden the recognized phenotype spectrum so with grouping them all together, we may miss this condition with the uncommon presentation. Uh, yes, I mean, the challenge of uncommon presentations of uncommon diseases is a particularly galling one. Um, before your paper came out, is there anything we could say specifically about the ALG8 CDG phenotype? ALG8 CDG is an autosomal disorder of glycosylation. In the 19 previously reported patients, it mostly manifests with multi-system involvement. 
reported patients frequently exhibited severe disease with neurological and hepatointestinal phenotype. The most common neurological manifestation were hypotonia and developmental delay followed by seizure, while the hepatointestinal symptoms included protein-losing enteropathy, cardiopathy, and edema leading to early death. Also, hypothyroidism, congenital heart anomalies, and cataract were found in many patients suggested endocrine, cardiac, and ocular involvement. And this new paper um, obviously adds seven patients to the 19 that are previously reported, so almost a 50% increase in numbers, which is very impressive. I'm just curious as to how they were diagnosed. Was it always a question of isoelectric focusing first, or was it that the genetics were done and the biochemistry was done afterwards? So for our cohort, all of the individuals went through biochemical screening first, by the transferrin and glycosylation study, which showed a type 1 pattern similar to previously reported cases. Uh, we, sh we saw increased mono to diglycosylated ratio, indicating the absence of entire end glycan chains. When the biochemical screening came back positive, genetic testing by next generation sequencing was done to confirm the diagnosis and to specify the causative gene. And I think it is important to have molecular diagnosis to identify if your patient has one of the CDG types that have treatment, or even if no current treatment, you can review the literature related to this specific CDG and anticipate it more precise medical care. But I think you're right that in clinical practice today, we tend to have more and more cases where the genetic testing comes back with variants, maybe they've never been described. And so figuring out how you can determine whether or not your patient is actually affected with a disorder is very helpful in the biochemical space to be able to do biochemical confirmation. I mean, and that's something that you've talked about in your paper. You've looked at some of the alternative biochemical studies that can be done to validate these genetic diagnoses, haven't you? Yes, we did. After we confirmed the diagnosis with molecular testing for all of our patients by identifying two pathogenic variants in ALGA gene, and we were able to identify nine novel variants in our cohort, we had in glycan assay and LLO analysis, we got fibroblasts from five patients and analyzed for synthesis of LLO, which was consistent with impairment of ALGA activity. The in-glycan results were essentially normal in the two individuals we checked, suggesting it is not very helpful. But for most physicians, the carbohydrate-deficient transferrin test would be the most useful and readily available test to confirm the diagnosis if you had molecular results first. I, I don't want to sound stupid, although I often do on this podcast, but what is LLO analysis? The LLO analysis is lipid-linked oligosaccharides, which are the precursors of uh, the in-linked glycan, which are essential information carriers in many biological systems. And the defect in the LLO synthesis caused the type 1 congenital disorder of glycosylation. Yeah, so the, the lipid-linked oligos accumulate within the endoplasmic reticulum as the different sugars are being added onto the growing end glycan chain. And so you can look at those uh, you know, somewhat like maybe an acylcarnitine profile where you can see accumulations of the abnormal lipid-linked oligos before the enzymatic defect. 
And would they have an abnormal profile in all CDG or is it specific to certain types, ones that may manifest more around defects in the ER? Or, or Correct. So it would usually be in the endoplasmic reticulum where you have these because after you build that glycan chain, you then transfer that oligosaccharide onto the growing polypeptide. So if you have a defect further on in your pathway, say with the type 2 disorders, you wouldn't see an accumulation in the endoplasmic reticulum on the lipid-linked oligo because that process is normal. And again, that's what leads to the type 1 defect and the type 2 defect, whether it's an endoplasmic reticulum defect or whether it's a Golgi trafficking or maturation defect. Oh, thank you for clearing that up for me. I say a lot of stuff goes up in my head. Um, your work really helps to broaden the phenotype for this rare condition. I mean, if I, if I don't misunderstand, it seems to add this sort of milder tail to existing descriptions. What was it you found in your patients and how might this change prognostication in ALG8 patients? We learned from previous reports that neurological manifestations such as hypotonia, seizures and developmental delay our most common feature to ALG8CDG. And our cohort showed consistency with this finding and expand this phenotype to include a stable intellectual disability, autism spectrum disorder, and other neuropsychiatric symptoms. Then the second most reported clinical manifestation is hepatic involvement. And previously, severe hepatic and gastrointestinal involvement include life-threatening edema, ascites, and coagulopathy, leading to significant morbidity and mortality in 75% of the patients. While in our cohort, as you mentioned, we find the hepatic and gastrointestinal symptoms were less severe, and all of our patients are alive, including our oldest who are 29 and 27 years old siblings. For these two patients, the first time concern was raised early in life due to developmental delay and hypotonia. The oldest has seizure disorder that required multiple antiepileptic drugs, and he also developed myoclonic jerk that worsened over time. Both siblings have severe intellectual disability with no evidence of further mental decline. They had been diagnosed with autism, and the younger one, the 27 years old, also has marked behavioral problems, including aggressive behavior, depression, ADHD, and hyperphagia. They both can walk with episodes of ataxia and postural instability. The 29-year-old talks in simple phrases, while his brother is nonverbal. The gastrointestinal issues include chronic constipation and dysphagia for the older sibling and obesity and GERD for the younger one. So, although our patients were in the milder end of the GI and hepatic clinical spectrum, they showed more neurological and behavioral issues, showing the clinical variability for this condition. And they further expand the clinical features in a variety of organ systems, including ocular, musculoskeletal, endocrine, and cardiac abnormalities, including abnormal heart rhythm. And lastly, we know that glycosylation has essential and widespread role in the immune response. However, immunological involvement hasn't been reported clearly in ALG8CDG. For our cohort, we identified three patients presented with recurrent infection, and in three patients, infection has been identified as trigger of clinical features, such as developmental regression, worsening hypotonia, 
and worsening seizures. These findings in our cohorts also expand the ALG8CDG phenotype. Those patients who were diagnosed, were they diagnosed late or were they patients that you knew about from an early age and, and are now 26 and 29? Uh, these are patients who had early concerns, were diagnosed as having a CDG when they were young and had biochemical testing, the isoelectric focusing that confirmed that it was a type 1 CDG defect, but did not have a molecular diagnosis for several years after that fact, given their age. And so we've known about them for a while and followed them for a while since then and find them particularly interesting. You know, it's it's not uncommon for families to come to me and, and say they're First interaction with uh, learning the diagnosis was someone who's not familiar with CDG check the literature and say ALG8 is a terrible infantile disease that all the babies die from. And, and they're sort of told your baby's going to die and the physicians then walk back out of the room. So I think it's important as we identify these more mild patients and patients who live longer that we report them so that we can give a, a better overall picture and prognostication to families. And I think there's probably a lot of adult patients out there who haven't been diagnosed, who sort of missed the boom in molecular testing, and we just don't know about them, but they're out there. Well, I'm fascinated by this kind of group of adult patients who have perhaps been forgotten, who may have a, a whole gamut of, of undiagnosed metabolic diseases, some of which may be amenable to treatment of sorts. So, yeah, um, absolutely. My oldest CDG patient is in his 70s with PMM2 CDG. So, yeah, so they're out there. They are out there. And I think that I think the problem, you know, as you said, is we, we know about the severe end of the phenotype, but we don't look so hard at those patients who might be at the more mild end, especially in those that don't have abnormal isoelectric focusing. They, they may well have missed the boat genetically. We've got to keep going back to them. Um, now, obviously, the, one of the things that your title of this paper suggests is the beginning of a clinical management guideline. Now, that's always going to be hard when you've only got 26 patients to date. But if a team were to make this diagnosis next week, you've mentioned that families would just be confronted with a literature search and then possibly some bad news. What priorities should clinicians have for their patients with these diagnoses? As you said, it is hard to make a clinical management guideline for rare disease. But from all what we learned from previous reports and our cohorts, we can say LG8CDG commonly reported multisystem involvement, which may first manifest or worsen at any age. And given their significant impact, we recommend a thorough evaluation for newly diagnosed patients to identify involved organ system and establish appropriate care with specialist providers. We First, we'd recommend a thorough serial lab assessment, including liver enzyme, albumin, coagulation profile, growth factor, adrenal axis, thyroid function test, and renal function. We would recommend developmental assessment with the initiation of physical, occupational, and speech therapies and neuropsychology evaluation in older children. Also, it is very important to have careful history to detect the presence of seizures and perform EEG when needed. Also, cardiac examination with EKG and echocardiogram and dilated ophthalmologic exam. And lastly, to keep in mind to evaluate for immunological involvement in the setting of recurrent infections. And you know, one of the things we'd consider with management is treatment. Is there anything in the pathway uh, that might provide a treatment option in ALG8? I know we've seen some progress in treatments for a small group of the CDG. 
So for now, there's no current treatment for ALG-ACDG and the general management for this condition, focusing on symptoms. For example, for the management of hypotonia and ataxia, physical therapy is the most important thing to initiate. For liver disease, although there is no specific treatment, but follow-up with a gastroenterologist and hepatologist should be standard of care. Having a regular screening for cardiac, endocrine, renal, hematological involvement, and refer to the specialist providers when indicated, all this part of the management of ALG-8-CDG. Um, I mean, I think it's so interesting to hear about this. I, the CDG are a group of disorders, I, I must confess, I don't think I knew about at medical school, and now they are this increasingly common group of rare diseases, or seems that way at any rate. Um, Andy, I know you're a part of the was it the Frontiers in CDG consortium that's really sort of working to raise knowledge and awareness around this group of disorders, aren't you? That's correct. Uh, so the Frontiers in CDG consortium is National Institutes of Health funded initiative for rare disease consortiums to try and prepare us for clinical trial readiness uh, in these groups of disorders. And so we have a large natural history study, which is what um, this group of patients comes out of to enroll all types of CDG so that we can learn what are the, the features of the different CDG types. And one of the things that we're trying to do is group types together, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, and trying to learn from the different types uh, what we can uh, apply to the other types to improve our, our clinical management and to identify opportunities for treatment. So this is a longitudinal study to obtain this type of information. And then uh, we're working to develop clinical trials when treatments or potential treatments become available. Well, it sounds promising. I guess we'll have to watch this space then. Absolutely. Oh, someone's dog's kicking off. <laughs> it could be worse. It could be a peacock. So well, thank you both so much for your time. If you'd like to read the paper, please click the link in the podcast description or go to the journal web pages and search for ALG8CDG. And if you'd like to hear more about CDG, well, then check out our podcast by searching for JMD Podcast wherever you'd like to listen um, and look for those episodes on uh, CDG with Yak Yakin and Hudson Freeze or PGM1 CDG with the inimitable um, Ava Mareva. Dania and Andy, thank you again for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'll give a plug for those podcasts as well. Those were excellent ones. So anyone who's interested should absolutely listen in on those. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. 